0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. ETA thirteen thirty hours, sir. It's not exactly warp speed.
1: <laughs> more like a late twenty-second century interplanetary journey. Sir,
2: you should read more history, ensign.
1: Yes,
0: sir.
3: Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, August 25th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the everything will be all right.
1: We're joined by John Thompson, A frequent guest on Just Right, he's a policy advisor to governments, think tanks, and international conferences on terrorism, organized crime, political extremism, propaganda, and conflict, and an ex-military officer, and is an extraordinarily experienced public speaker who specializes in extremely sensitive controversies. Welcome, John. Thank you. Now, before we get into some of those sensitive controversies, I'd like to remind our listeners that you can write us at Feedback at TrustRateMedia.org. Follow us on Facebook, or like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. And uh, visit our website, TrustRateMedia.org, to find links to all our social media and past episodes of the show. So let's get the ball rolling, John. We want to talk here about the new left. Can you define what you mean by the new left?
2: Well, the new left is actually now the very old and stale left. So what is old is new again? Well, what what is new is old and and very, very stale, but it more or less came up in the 1960s. And these were the leftists who were the children of the people who'd been sticking to the Soviet party line in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And that party line got pretty wobbly and threw a lot of people off of the curves. And one of the things that they did was they they looked at some of the, the French Marxists, uh, and this was the emergence of what we call postmodernism.
1: Are you talking about the Berkeley sit-in type people?
2: Even before them. Before them, okay. Yeah, this we're talking about the, the very first part of the 60s. But one of the points was that um, was the left was always embarrassed by their history. And one of the features of postmodernism was coming up was that history was unimportant, along with a number of other values. And what better way than to straighten out all the historical embarrassments, than to ignore them. History does not occur. History is unimportant, except if you're mining it for you know, particular snippets for is, a particular is, is point.
3: A, is that a conscious thing that they're doing, you think, or is it something that is just happening by default? We don't want to hear about this, so we're not talking about it.
2: Actually, take a look at the teaching of history in the last 40 years and ask yourself that question again. You know, we really have It'll give me forty years. Let me think about it. <laughs> uh, okay, w- where are you going? Well, we we have divorced yeah. ourselves from our history, and that history is unimportant. More to the point, when you when you dredge up history, you ignore the context. We will make a fuss about, uh, say, Jefferson being a slave owner, where at the time Jefferson was alive. you know, Slave owning wasn't unusual. But and now they wanted uh, to say
1: that the Gadsden flag was, is racist because it was designed by a
3: slave owner.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I
3: clearly see. history is important, but we have to tell the right history
2: and make it up well, so that it'll suit our purposes. Is that what's going on, really? Only if you nitpick uh, and take everything out of context. The, the whole broad sweep of history is out. But there was also a part of the New Left is that there was a discarding of old values like loyally, loyalty, integrity, gravitas, civitas, everything else, in favor, say, some of the new values, which are undefined. When you pe- hear people talking about social justice, what is social justice? It's never
1: defined. How does it, how does it differ from regular justice?
2: Well, it, that's it's one of the points. Regular well, justice, you've got volumes and volumes. You've got precedent, you've got court. Social justice is whatever you want it to be. Um, isn't, and, it, isn't it intended to be group rights over individual rights? Isn't that the idea of social justice? That's one of the ways it works. But again, nothing's ever written down, nothing ever was. You Again, all these other formless concepts, they can be whatever you want them to be. We talk about diversity, and we never actually framed it. And, uh, multiculturalism, again, we never really decided what it was. And how is multiculturalism different from the cosmopolitan uh, practical experiences that had often existed in the Western world. You know, London in the 19th century, New York in the early 20th century go all the way back to Imperial Rome, which was pretty cosmopolitan. Why did we choose this new word which wasn't defined over an existing word that we knew perfectly well?
3: Good question. You you know, even when we use a term like the new left, we're, we're using a term to segregate something from something else. And you said it was like uh, the old stale left, okay, if the new left is the same as the old stale left, is there another left in there somewhere that we left out? <laughs> <laughs> no, let's be,
1: uh, <laughs> I want to add something to that to that question. The old left, now we've defined the new left, okay, the, um, the don't trigger my offense type left. The old left, though, are we talking Karl Marx and Stalin and Mao? And-
2: In a lot of ways, we were talking about, again, the orthodox socialists, the orthodox Marxist-Leninists, and you knew what they were. And they spent a lot of time and effort actually talking about what their beliefs entailed, and there was actually party discipline. It, it made the communists more than a little bit boring, but on the other hand, you you knew exactly what you're dealing with. And again, the socialists were very different uh, but again, there was a whole package, and you knew what it was, and it was very carefully defined. What we have for a left now, is there any concentric, coherent ideology? You know, especially, say, when you're looking at street protesters. They don't have a cause. They're just looking for a venue now. Well, aren't they just then anarchists? Yeah, well, not even that. I mean, again, a conventional anarchist used to actually have an ideological package, which demanded a lot of reading and a lot of thinking. Nowadays... Who needs it? It's all boring. Get rid of it. So protest for the sake of protesting because it feels good? Yeah. And self-validation, and you, you don't need a cause. You just need an, uh, a venue. It's, it's, would part of it be um, the desire to
1: be part of a group or a movement?
2: Well, there's also the, this desire, and this is again part of the new left, for, for change. For some new undefined future in which all will be different and better and you can ignore every failure in the past because they didn't matter you know, something went wrong but who cares in the future it'll be better and it'll all be wonderful all we have to do is and then you go happily happily go off and lurch into making the same mistakes as ever
1: would you define a new right at all or are they just simply left as well because I I define what we consider to be conservative I. They are so far to my left <laughs> that um, it's I, lup, I lump them all into the same um, mm-hmm. moniker. Yes. Um, for example, if they're conserving something, what they're usually conserving are left-wing policies.
2: Again, the, the labels have all been deliberately fudged and messed up, and who knows what a conservative is anymore. And you know, actually the word
1: liberal actually was a, is a good term before in the past. I to be liberal about something was um, a positive thing. Now, of course, it describes um, a nut job. <laughs>
2: <laughs> a political lefty. Where I think of myself very much as a liberal mm-hmm. in, in the good sort sense. of a late 19th century, early 20th century. Classical sense. liberal type of thing. Exactly. Is. So the words have been usurped and destroyed. And, and distorted. But again, that's part uh, of sort of the intellectual climate that's developed since the 1960s. And it's a whole environment of what we sort of call postmodernism. Uh, I, I think it's one of the most dangerous things you can do, especially on a radio talk show, is to start talking about intellectual patterns in history, because there's nothing that sets an audience to sleep faster than that. Um, we don't pander to our audience. Very well. Uh, then Tell every member of your audience to get out there and read uh, Norman Cantor's The American Century. Uh, just for the, I think, the first introduction and the first chapter, which is talks about the intellectual currents of the last 500 years in a very coherent Reader's Digest version that sort of lays out how we've developed in the last 500 years and why it's important. And then we have this segue into postmodernism where all of that legacy has been sort of crumpled out and tossed away. And we're into this new environment where nothing matters, all the old values are gone, the all values are undefined. And we've created the situation that you actually see in Europe and the United States now where we've got this. Self-defined elite that doesn't regard anything as being important and that's not just left that's also uh, you know look at the United States, that's also conservatives that that new elite runs academia, it runs finance, it runs politics, it runs the uh, the civil service and they're wrong all across the board in this, know, first, some way
1: isn't there a benefit though to having a, a less restraint upon you as an individual? than, for example, uh, previous generations had where the leave it to beaver type of family unit was the goal and the ideal. And now that we, don't lo- we no longer see that necessarily as a positive value, isn't it okay to, th- to um, go out there and create your own type of um, life for yourself
2: unconstrained by social convention? Yes, but do you want that in your banker? Where 40 years ago, they had a fair amount of uh, moral authority, reserve, rectitude. There was things you just didn't do. Um, Strip off assets from a corporation to inflate your profitability for a year so you could give the executives bonuses wasn't one of them. You, you You regarded handling other people's money as a sacred trust and you followed the rules. Politicians, again, 40 years ago, you were meant to follow the rules. Uh, And Hillary Clinton isn't the only example of a politician that seems to be made of Teflon that goes from scandal to scandal, issues that would have doomed a political career 40 years ago, and she's impervious to them,
1: and she's not the only one. Well, she's impervious partly because the media, the Clinton News Network, would would call her up and say, what kind of questions would you like us to ask you today?
2: Well, actually, here I am in the media, but... um, Yellow journalism and partisan journalism isn't very, isn't very new, um, and it's always been blatant. But it's, all these other institutions used to have rules that people had to live by, and they don't anymore. The, the media itself, I think, in, in some respects, is more blatant. For example, uh, fudging opinion polls. And you know, say overrepresenting, uh, for example, say, uh, democratic supporters in your opinion poll. So you say, oh, you know, Hillary's ahead by eight points over Trump. And everyone looks at the headline, no one actually looks at the data that supported the uh, headline. We're in a society also where nobody actually looks at the roots anymore.
1: I'll give you an example as well. I think that this would be an example of taking an event that as the media you disagree with, not you personally, but the media disagrees with, and then uh, making as much hay out of it, you'll notice a lot of headlines now coming out of Great Britain and uh, the European Union, which start off with a negative. For example, uh, stock market plunges in wake of Brexit, or um, you know immigration um, patterns affected to England, you know post Brexit. You have all of these negative headlines, and they tack on the post Brexit, implying, of course, that. Because the, uh, the people of the UK dis- dared to leave the European Union, they are now the cause of everything that is happening uh, it, negatively in that country. Well, it's... Pandas having less sex post-Brexit. <laughs> it, it's getting absurd.
2: Yeah, and there are other, uh, other values that are other issues that are just not touched at all. For example, again, in our societies, one of the hottest issues right now is about financial accountability, but you'd never see that in the news media. People have a great great many reservations about open, open, unrestricted immigration, especially the fact that we don't filter Muslims to try and weed the Salafists and Wahhabis out, and we're having trouble with them. But again, that's not a subject for discussion. Um, There is an orthodoxy now that is very much a part of the the post-modernist elite, in the news media. So the diversity uh, of discussion that used to exist, the, the full range of debate that used to exist, does not exist anymore.
0: The mood here is still upbeat. They like the internal exits they're seeing. They're not troubled that Obama isn't losing in a single state he needs to win? They like what they're seeing in Ohio and Florida. What are they seeing? Honey, I'm starting to get funny looks from people here. They know I'm Skyping with ACN. You're Skyping with me. No one can see
1: or hear us. Hey, Helen. Hey,
2: Maggie. Will wants senior staff in the studio. I'll be right there. It's mostly the bloggers who don't want me helping out old media.
3: You know, why don't you tell new media that old media's got a combined audience of about 80 million tonight?
0: I will, but new media will probably respond by saying that the report
4: you just gave about Racine, Wisconsin running out of ballots came off Twitter.
3: Then you should reply by telling
1: new media to bite me, my accountability and professionalism.
4: Can you get someone else to do this?
0: By the way, a little while ago we called the Michigan first for Dan Beneshek. If you were thinking of posting something about it, I'd hold off. Why? I accidentally called the wrong race. I met Mississippi. You didn't retract it? Our decision desk is 100% confident he's going to win.
3: Then why can't you call it?
0: They're not confident enough.
3: You should really retract it.
0: If you were us tonight, would you retract something you didn't absolutely have to?
3: No.
0: I'm going all in on Beneshev. Hang on. They're waiting for me in the studio. I think she cut her own hair. Tonight's really not the Cutting night. off your own hair. That's alarming.
4: Manhattan Project. It's a bomb, isn't it? What's different about it? How close are they to finishing it? Hogan, I'm going to be frank with you. You've heard the expression, every man has his price. Let's say there's a price for everything a man has or knows. I like the way you think.
3: John, before the break, you were talking about um, not learning from history and abandoning history. And it struck me there might be two motivations for for abandoning the whole idea of history. One is that you look at history and all you see, especially a, a, a very modern person who hasn't got a very good clue of what actually drove history, but all they see is this unrelated system or series of violent events of things that were not good world war ii was not a good thing what they did to the jews during the war what was done by stalin what was done you can go back in history so people are saying well that's not the life i want to live they're they're rejecting that in and kind of with good intent in the sense of I don't want to repeat all these bad historical things, but in so abandoning it, they don't learn what caused those things in the first place. So the other motivation, which I see as more negative, is the refusal to want to be right, to not have that discipline of learning the lessons of the past. Is there, am I getting into any point here that, that's worth making in the sense of differing people trying who, who are on this new left Uh, ideology, let's say, who might have slightly different motivations
2: for being there. Well...
3: Like, I mean, almost every generation thinks it's setting a new trend for the future, and, uh, you know...
2: And and, and usually they are. Every generation does, but...
3: In its own way, yeah. um, But the patterns are always the same. Historical patterns are always the same.
2: I guess when when I look at my library at home, in my living room, uh, right beside my work desk, uh, Place of Pride goes to the 11 volumes... Of will and Ariel Durant's story of civilization mm-hmm. um because that's everything you know the times are always reflected in thought in science, in art, and everything else and It's not just about battles and and monstrosities and uh, massacres and who did dirty to someone else. It's everything else, too. It's everything we've ever built. And this is one of the points, and and, uh, Durant makes it quite well, of course, is that civilization is a precious trust you hand off to the next generation. And I think we've dropped that. You know, we are the heirs to everything that's gone for three and a half, four thousand years, Babylonian mathematicians, Greek natural philosophers, Roman engineers. uh, It's all there. Uh, And yeah, you can have, I think in one of his volumes, a meeting where Beethoven, uh, Napoleon, and Hegel all met at one point just to be introduced introduced to each other as celebrities at a particular time. Napoleon, of course, has his track record and the wars that killed millions of people. But they were also all people who reflected the time and created sort of the romantic era that followed on from the Age of Enlightenment. They didn't sit there thinking, hey, it's time to create a new age. We don't often recognize a new school of thought or a new age coming up uh, when it starts to develop. But everyone is, and I hate to use the word gestalt, is a reflection of the times. Uh, and. Nobody in the early 60s... Well, as
3: as Salim Mansour likes to say, we live history in retrospect, or or we we know history in retrospect, but we live it in prospect. So that you can never uh, know ahead of time whether your era is actually an era that can be identified as anything distinctive.
2: That's a good quote. There's also, I think, Max Boot, who's written about small wars and and minor conflicts. He said that uh, um, history is not the most reliable guide to where we're going, but it's the only one we've got. So steering off into the future without uh, knowing what the guidebook says is even more hazardous than normal, Uh, and that has been part of the problem with the new left. Is that the guidebook is boring and and no one needs to really read that stuff, and and off we go in 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 new directions. And uh, I guess if you um, well if you want a a a humorous look at sort of the creation of the new elite, you you go to P. J. O'Rourke. And I think it was his introduction to uh, Parliament of Whores. And he talked about how there was a new self-defining elite and all you had to do to belong to it was accept the beliefs. You didn't have to actually be strong or lucky or wealthy. Uh, Or you can do something a little more detailed. Uh, Christopher Lash's last book, The Revolt of the Elites and the Betrayal of Democracy, was published after his death in 1995. But there's been no better guide to what we've seen in the last 20 years than that particular book. And a number of people are realizing just how totally correct Lash was about uh, the way the American political culture was starting to behave. The political culture, the culture running their financial institutions, their academia, their media, um, their government.
1: Where do you see the new left and this ideology taking taking us?
2: Well, we're seeing it now. We're seeing that uh, we have managed to fail at almost everything. Uh, we're in the middle of the most protracted recession. I mean, this we're still in the Great Recession of 2008. We haven't recovered from it. We're entering into a new area, uh, era of new technologies without any idea of what might actually efface us. We're looking at almost a complete collapse of trust in our political institutions. This whole unfounded, it'll all be good on the day approach to immigration, instead of actually having an immigration policy, is creating a lot of harm in our cities. I mean, diversity—I like it in practice, but you know, we we've been doing it without actually thinking about some of the consequences. So we're actually now at a stage: Trump and Brexit, uh, Generation Identitaire in France, and all these other movements. Anonymous. Are, yeah, they're connected in some ways. And what they are connected by is we're starting to see the revolt against the the new left. In other words, the new left are now in their 60s and 70s. They're running things. And there's a lot of people these days who are looking and going, it's not working. You're destroying our societies. You don't know where we're going. We're heading towards an abyss that we don't like. So you then know, let's, let's get a hand on the brakes and see what we can do. So what you're
3: saying, then, is that this growing revolt that seems to be brewing is not coming from the left, then? Is that, is that what you're contending? It, it's coming from all directions. There
2: are aspects of, sure, of, of but the generally, left in it. Um, you were
3: mentioning before about
1: Swedes actually burning some of the uh, immigrant camps in their country or Germans holding hands at the border trying to give a, uh, a visual to uh, stop uh, immigration into their country. Yeah,
2: hundreds of thousands of Germans holding hands at their border saying, you know, stop, we're we're tired of all this. We're having a crime rate going through the roof yeah. because we're bringing in these refugees and they don't fit and no one's checking.
1: And yet you have Angela Merkel uh, defying the people and uh, just letting
2: them come in anyway. And
1: Is she driven by an ideology and damn the pr- torpedoes and full steam ahead with this well, diversity I, thing? I,
2: I think she's confused by it. Uh, And she's aware. I mean, Angela Merkel is one of the the three European leaders who said two years ago that multiculturalism wasn't working.
1: She did say that. But then again, she's an opportunist as well, isn't she?
2: Yeah, flipping things around. And the case with the Swedes was that, again, uh, the Swedes have seen what has happened in some of their major cities. Uh, it's been an absolute catastrophe in, uh, in, in Mamlo and in now in Stockholm. Mm. So in other smaller areas of Sweden, are told okay, we're taking this holiday camp and we're using it as a refugee settlement center. And Swedes coming out in the night and burning the camp down because they don't want the experience of their major cities in their town. Uh, Generation Idientere in, in France, other groups developing. Again, these are largely nativist groups and I say nativists, they are people who are saying, hold on, we are still a recognizable culture. We've been told for 40 years our culture is meaningless. We dispute that. Uh, We'd like to actually hang on to it for a while. But they're also still mostly constitutional. They'd actually like a return to normative politics. Uh, They're not offering that much violence. On the other hand, if violence is offered to them, I don't think they'll be slow in responding to it. In some ways, I'm worried about the United States. Uh, especially if this election turns into a a real debacle, it, you could see some, a very large outbreak of violence in starting this November in the states. Especially if uh, some of the things that happened in the Democratic convention happen in the national election.
1: Well, Trump himself has suggested, and I would agree with him that there will be shenanigans, uh, you know, in the vote counting and fraud and um, Hillary might get in. If she does get in, it would probably be at the hands of criminal activity.
2: It would be a stolen election, It would be stolen, yes.
1: And if she gets in and um, half the population don't want her there and half of the Democratic um, electorate don't really want her there
2: either. On the other hand, uh, Trump is, uh, if I dare use the term, not the great white hope either. (laughs) I mean, he's the, the first politician who's sort of a... In the United States, who's identified the growing dissatisfaction with what's happened in the last 40 years, but he's not the sort of leader that you'd actually want to be uh, running that revolt against the system. You mean, know, he's...
1: I think that if he got a gets in, this is issues. total conjecture, but if he got in, he would be a front man for the revolt, and there will be a lot of people behind him um, advising him on where to go. He's certainly an interesting character with a lot of endearing qualities, but... Um, you're right. It would be a very strange world indeed with either of these people, you know, um, in the Oval Office.
2: And Well, that's the world we're heading for. <laughs> it's also the, the whole point about Brexit in the UK is, again, it's, you know, desire to put the brakes on. And you, you've seen the reaction from the, the media and from... The existing media elites uh, and the existing elites in Europe all decrying the choice of the British, where actually it may turn out that the, uh, the choice to exit from the EU may be actually financially quite sound and good for Britain, but you won't see that ever admitted just yet. But the this undefined good better new exciting world that uh, we are all supposed to go to that the eu was representing for us and more and more people are, are saying i want out of it stop we put the brakes on and uh, we're laughing we're calling them right wing we're calling them nut jobs there's the, the derision towards trump supporters uh, and his refusal to accept the fact that they may have some valid points and that is going to lead to I think a cultural collision of the sort that we haven't seen since the 1960s, when the new left started to emerge.
4: 1961, the Cold War rages between the United States and the Communist powers. It is a war of nerves, of threats and bluffs, of military bluster. Armies and ominous tanks line the streets of Moscow, as do missiles with warheads, carrying the promise of mass destruction. It is an era of intrigue and espionage, Soviet spies are routinely trapped and sent to prisons or they are exchanged for American spies incarcerated behind the Iron Curtain. Tensions culminate with the shooting down of an American high-altitude reconnaissance plane while the UN ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge shows a hidden microphone the Reds disguised in the Great Seal at an embassy. Abroad, often in the midst of bloodthirsty Marxist regimes tiny islands of free american territory in the person of united states embassies carry on round the clock efforts to maintain stable relations often against hostile and aggressive populations one slip in the world of cold war diplomacy could lead instantly to nuclear disaster
0: up with Ann Coulter at the David Horowitz restoration weekend in Palm Beach now you call the left a religion why is that yes um, I mean they have all of the tropes the attributes of a religion the intolerance of another point of view the belief in things on faith I mean take gun control how many times do we have to disprove that and still liberals as a matter of faith no, gun control. We must have gun control.
3: <laughs> now, Obama's campaign on change and on hope. you
0: had quite a bit to say about that. <laughs> yes. Yes, that was quite a catchy campaign slogan, wasn't it? Hope and change, change and hope. Um, every politician runs on change and hope. That was... I went back... Uh, Sometimes for my, for my college speeches, um, I run through all of these quotes about, you know, what what this campaign is, uh, is about is change, it's about change and hope, and it's just quote after quote after quote from, from campaign spokesman and from the New York Times describing the campaign of change and hope. And at the end of my list, I say this is all from the Clinton campaign, <laughs> because that was the Clinton campaign as well, hope and change and bringing people together.
4: And you see yourself as a feminist? oh no
0: oh no 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 no, never that label no 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 it's like it would you know i like i like i like dogs and flowers but i'm not a green that greens are um you know watermelons green on the outside red on the inside that's the feminist movement from your perspective you take this very uniquely you see it as a right and a left issue. It is. I mean, look at what the feminist movement has done for for women in America. Um, they made divorce much easier. Um, the, they were the ones going around defending Bill Clinton, having affair after affair with interns you didn't even know the names of. Um, how, how has that helped women? Has divorce really worked out for American women? No, of course, when a woman gets divorced, her her income goes down significantly, she doesn't have a man around, and um, that's why single women are liberal. It, I mean, it really isn't something genetic with us, but it is something genetic to, to, to you know, have the sense that you need a man you can depend on, and when there are no men you can depend on, and when the law don't force the men you marry to allow you to depend on them, well then the government becomes your husband. When it comes down to women's rights, there's one issue that also stands out. The feminist movement, for example, supports the woman's right to wear on the cab.
4: What's your reaction to that,
0: Anne? Let America remain a country where that does not become a common word. (laughs) Yes. Yes, yes. But um, I can top that how about at airport security they're going to keep checking all the americans while letting the muslims go through wearing the, the full hijab or whatever it's called.
4: Now you're pretty <laughs> offended
0: by airport security too. Oh. It's just, it's so stupid, it's so stupid, as I was saying at the, my speech, in the, at the lunch today, I, I have many points against it. One is, as with gun control, they're searching for the thing rather than the person. That's never going to work. They're looking for the sharp objects, and then you get a shoe bomber. Now we're looking for the shoes. Um, then they're looking for the liquids. Now we're looking for pin- printer cartridges. So that's one point. You have to look for the terrorist, not the thing.
1: You're listening to Just Right, and you can go to our website, justrightmedia.org, where you can find all of our past shows. We're in studio with John Thompson of the Strategic Capital Intelligence Group, John, we're talking about the left and a sort of revolt against the left simultaneously while the left is trying to revolt against decades of values and, and infrastructure and uh, society. That also happened to be left
3: for the most part, which I find. Yeah, a that, which is ironic, <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> so we're in a bit of a turmoil politically. Um, historically, though, haven't a lot of revolutions a lot of um upheaval been good for and i can think of for example um since the first world war which is basically a war against ruling monarch families um we've we've overthrown kings we've beheaded kings we've gotten rid of uh, the gentry and the nobility and they're now just figureheads um isn't some of this
2: revolution, justifiable? It's part of the process of history. There is always going to be revolutions. There has to be change. I mean, we have not been static in the Western world for the last 500 years. You go from the Renaissance into the Reformation, into the Enlightenment, into the Romantic era, which generated uh, Nazism, nationalism, communism, and we've been dealing with the leftovers from that. Um, Then sort of modernism, which was more of an artistic and technical uh, term, and then into this postmodernism. Part of the idea of postmodernism was also to sort of pull the teeth from European society, to lessen uh, ties of nationalism, to uh, increase the communal feelings, and to perhaps try and make it possible to not go back to the situation that made the First and the Second World War possible. Of course, the point is that sometimes we overreact. Um, the new left, when they were consciously thinking about these things, it's. I think it's another thing that point that needs to be mentioned is that a lot of our thought processes are actually subconscious. Even when we change the way of thinking, people aren't actually getting up and going. Oh, now check the calendar. It's a postmodernist era today. I have got to start thinking this way. That they reflect the sort of gestalt of the time, the influences from art and science and everything else all work together and affect politics and vice versa. But that thinking has been the establishment thinking. You know, if if you look back to, say, 1992, George Bush Sr. was the last of the World War II generation and Clinton was the start of the, the baby boomer generation's running things. And so they've been running things now for uh, oh, um, <clears throat> 24 years uh, and even longer in parts of Europe. So they are the establishment now. And there are a number of people in Western Europe and North America who are saying the establishment has totally screwed everything up. And I would agree with that. <laughs>
1: However, what, talking about revolt and that, and some of the revolts being justifiable, for example, against a despot or something like that.
3: Well, a revolt Um, is, is, the word says it, you're revolting against an existing condition of some sort. Mm -hmm. And as we've observed many times on this show with the whole issue between freedom and tyranny, is that rarely do people rush to freedom. They run away from tyranny. And whether they, you know, end up moving towards something that resembles freedom is often a matter of chance in terms of which direction. Sometimes they run into a worse worse situation of tyranny. I look at a lot of the revolts today,
1: for example, Black Lives Matter, which I think is a a, a superficial understanding of um, race relations in the United States. It's a superficial sense of or feeling of an injustice that may or may not even exist um, actually, I would think that it does not exist um, as a systemic... If we're thinking about a systemic racism in police forces, I don't think that is, is is the truth. There is definitely racist police officers, but they are so few and far between. Black Lives Matter is nothing but um, a reactionary... uh reaction to, from the left to, um, as you say, maybe a paper tiger. It's a non-existent threat. Um, aren't most of the left-wing revolutions today from Black Lives Matter to um, uh, not, uh, not investing in Israel, you know, you name it, um, or anti-globalization, any of these fads for rev- revolutions, isn't that becoming almost uh, the um, icon of the new left? is a fad revolution of the week what's what's what are we what are we going to re- revolt against this week
2: well i I sort of think of it as a, uh an undead monster, a zombie getting up and lurching around the landscape in a habit of life and <laughs> yeah, there's of, there's really often not the the coherent burning ideology except in the minds of a, a few people. Uh, often there's sort of a romantic ideal that we're supposed to be up against the system, we're supposed to be smashing down the barricades and affecting change. And of course, you don't think things through. And of course sometimes a revolution is led by demagogues and montebanks. That's the truth of it. And, yes. But yeah.
1: most of as you say, you don't think things through. In other words, they're superficial. Today's revolts are superficial. Very often. And they are not legitimate in my turn.
2: Another my problem mind. is that uh, a revolt can often occur and immediately lead you in even worse directions. Mm-hmm. We we look at the the Arab Spring in 2011 and of course everyone forgets that the real driver for that particular revolt was food prices, which is often a historical case. But uh, <clears throat> well, food p- 1848, the French Revolution, check out the food prices. People who think they're going to get hungry get, tend to get very very angry. Then they go, and they will find a political excuse. But the Arab Spring, in the most part, didn't leave anybody in a better situation.
1: No, I would say um, not. No.
2: And, and it's, it's a sort of one of our unfortunate points is that backing our revolution is the sucker bet. You know, the Americans especially, if it's a revolution, it must be a good thing because we think our revolution was a good thing. Therefore, every revolt is worth supporting. And you think that the Americans... Tried to get friendly with Castro, tried to get friendly with the Sandinistas. Well, that's what
1: I'm talking about when I'm talking about superficiality or glossing over uh, an effect. People point to a revolution, for example, uh, of the Palestinians revolting against uh, this supposed occupation by Israel, which you just have to laugh at if you know anything about the history of that region. And they say that, well, they are entitled to that because the Americans had their revolution. If you can have a revolution, we can have a revolution, negating and ignoring the history and the causes of those revolutions.
4: And, and they the, just look
1: at the word revolution. Oh, the United States did
2: it? Then it's okay. We can do it too. Yeah, and the, I think there's two revolutions that really did work. You know, the British Revolution of 1689 and the American Revolution, largely because the revolutionaries had an idea of what they wanted. The French Revolution is actually one of the very modern revolution. What are we revolting for? You know, liberty, equality, fraternity... Could you uh, define them? Or uh, I'd like 20% less fraternity and 10% more <laughs> equality. And how does that actually well, work? You
3: what you just said is what I w- had observed before is how a lot of revolt is running away from something, whereas you're saying the two that were successful, the planners of that or organizers, were actually moving towards something that they had in mind. Would you say that's a fair distinction?
2: That is. On the other hand, you've also got the... Uh, The Bolshevik Revolution. Remember, Russia had two revolutions in 1917. One was away. The second one, unfortunately, was a purposeful revolution and the intense human misery that resulted from that. Um, I mean, revolutions can be all sorts of things. But what we're talking about right now, I think, is a revolution in uh, thinking and in culture. Um, and behavior. I don't know how it'll translate into control of institutions. Will the, the rebellion behind Brexit, behind the Trump candidacy, uh, behind uh, some of the other groups in Europe actually get control of power? Will they know what to do with it? I'm not so sure. The other point, of course, is that we, we forget the, um, even in the 1960s and early 70s in the United States, there was a fair amount of political violence. How many people died in the in the u.s between say 68 and 75 before things finally sort of stabilized again um, and look at it now I mean black lives matter seemed that seems to have ignited some very angry people who are stalking police officers killing and again off the pigs we heard that before uh, <clears throat> and again look at the Black Panthers and the way they worked out back in those days and look at black lives matter now Um there are people who genuinely believe they have a real grievance; they'd like to articulate. There are also an awful lot of street hustlers and the original Black Panthers. One of the reasons they fell apart was they were riddled with criminals, and that seems to be. I think that's part of the makeup now.
3: You're talking about a revolution in thinking. What 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 form do you see that thinking taking shape in? Like, how would you define that 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 form of thinking. Um, I know off-air we talked about, you know, the new the new thought is we now tolerate the intolerable, among other things. Um, aren't we really dealing with a revolution in non-thinking? Like, for, for we're abandoning thinking and we're calling that a revolution?
2: Oh, I, that might be a good point. In fact, I, I think it is, because largely it is a rejection and a conservative revolution where you're rejecting changes that have occurred in your lifetime doesn't really work that well, and if you actually try to artificially create a new set of values, that doesn't work well either. You can't
3: do it without definitions either, because definitions are like numbers in, in a in a numeric equation. If you don't know what a 5 is, you can't calculate with it, and you can't think with it. So if if to you a 5 is a 2 sometimes, and an 8 other times, you're not going to get along with the people who know that 5 is 5. So this is the problem we have in politics all the time. A lot of people still don't know what we're talking about when we say left-wing and right-wing. They haven't got a clue. Uh, they don't have a clue
1: when we talk about rights. Yeah. If you went out there and you see sometimes these funny videos on YouTube where uh, an interviewer would go to the beach and ask, "Why? it's July 4th, why are we
2: celebrating here? And they're Americans,
1: and they can't answer.
2: Well, it's, where. <clears throat> what is the coherent ideology behind Trump? I'm... I'm really not sure it's there. I would say there is a nativist ideology. Uh, There's a yearning to say that things would be better if we discarded this and, and retreated, went back. But it's not actually been fully articulated as to what do we want to go back to. And again, merely revolting against the existing tyranny can lead to worse tyrannies. That's part of the problem
4: as well. That's the pitfall in front of us. Deep in communism's fanatic totalitarian underbelly is where our story takes place. Here, in a quaint but sturdy mansion of traditional structure, a dedicated and disciplined group of foreign service workers representing the United States government navigate with patience and skill the treacherous shoals of international relations in the atomic age. It is in this small haven that negotiations take place. Asylum is given and gracious dinners with dignitaries from all over the world are a part of Uncle Sam's efforts to coexist. The embassy is run by U.S. Ambassador Bradley Dunstan McGee, who is proud to serve his nation in this poor and hostile environment. Soon it'll be fall in Paris. Oh Yes, sir. I wish we were at the embassy in Paris too, sir.
2: Well, don't because this is where the war is going to be won or lost with the Reds. They don't need top diplomats at the Follies Berger.
0: Yes, sir. I didn't mean to imply that the work we're doing here is not significant.
2: We've got a job to do, and we're going to do it, and we're going to do it
3: better than anybody else. Yes, sir.
4: Here are those allocations you requested. In addition to Mr. Burns, Ambassador McGee is ably abetted by Mr. John Kilroy, Yale 49, and Miss Rosemary Purchard. Mr. Kilroy's view of Karl Marx is rather straightforward and simple and reflects that of Mr. John Wayden. The only good communist is a dead communist. They're like Indians. Oh, Ah.
0: God. Mr. Gilroy, in the ambassador's absence, I will be in charge here. Now, I realize there's some discrepancy in our experience, and I don't want that to cause any any awkwardness or resentment. I intend to run a discipline ship, but a fair one. Now, the word around here is that you don't really approve of me. I might have believed that. You can speak freely. You know, I encourage my staff to, to honestly express themselves in an environment of, of open frankness. So, you know, off the record.
2: What do you think of me? I think you're a moron, totally unsuited
4: to the diplomatic corps, unequal to the task of fighting communism, clinging desperately to a disastrous career through the good graces of your father's connections. In short, despite your family's advantages, a born failure.
0: Ah, uh-huh. you needn't hide your feelings
2: just to spare me. Will that be
0: all? Yeah, yes, thank, thank you. Thank you for being so candid. You know, it's refreshing when someone despises you to hear it phrased so succinctly.
1: John, what can the average person out there do to constructively contribute to our political society? Because we see a lot of university students out there with this angst. And they're going in directions that I don't think are very constructive. And, and a lot of them, and you know, I don't want to disparage a generation, um, Clint Eastwood call it the pussy generation or the pussy society. I forget which one, but he's right in a lot of respects. But I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush. Those people out there who feel disaffected, what can they constructively do to help society uh, progress properly?
2: I I just wonder if we're going to start putting up uh, iconic Clint Eastwood posters and wearing Clint Eastwood T-shirts. uh, maybe I do not think that that's going to be too constructive. Well, actually, maybe with a slogan, you know, get a pair, get a thick, <laughs> uh, get a thick hide. Um, well, even
3: even Eastwood's getting under attack now and his daughter's coming out defending him, which I find unnecessary, but...
2: Uh. Well, I think maybe people think it's safe because he's 88 now, that they can bully him a little bit, but uh, they may be in for uh, a disappointment. But... Uh, I mean, let's, that's been the reality of all of our lives in, in a number of different dimensions is that, you know, my sacred cattle have been poached and eaten for years. And frankly, I find other people's sacred cattle are often quite delicious, too. And to actually a democratic society is supposed to be about rough and tumble. Um, and it's supposed to be about uh, viewing with alarm and hand-wringing and uh, decrying what the other party does, but you're also not supposed to take it seriously. You know, at some point, you've got to actually sit down with someone from an opposing point of view and get along, especially if you're both elected and start doing committee work. Uh, the partisanship we've seen in the United States where we've got two parties who are sort of harumping at each other and won't talk to each other again is is, is very, very dangerous. It's, I think... I uh pride uh, my well, actually I'm very Is it pl-
3: real though? Is it is that what's really happening or is that just the show they're giving to the I,
2: I I'm really not sure. Um I know in Ottawa it's not the case. Um Queen uh I wouldn't say about Queen's Park, but it's also personal. Uh I have some friends who are about as far to the left as I am to the right, which means they're pretty far to the left. But we get along just fine. Mm-hmm. Um Cause largely because we respect each other, and I think that's actually maybe the, the first point about your own personal code is you respect differences. Uh, and again, when I say I'm against diversity and, and multiculturalism, I'm against them as values. I'm not against anybody for what they look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I'm prepared to respect anybody. You know, for. Who they well, are, but if you earn you, my respect, you will have it. And
3: Do you respect the person who, whose whole ideology is to do away with you in some way?
2: No, for him, I would not respect. Okay. That's, that's the point. Because
3: Isn't that the nature of a lot of left and right disputes? I mean, they, they'd kill each other if you let them to it. That's why we have politics instead of war. <laughs> yes, they, as a matter of fact, they want to kill you by proxy. They want to uh,
1: vote somebody in who's going to pick your pocket, destroy your job, and some of them want to kill you.
2: That's why I'm selective about who I respect, but again, respect has to be reciprocated. For me, for example, I've used this expression a lot, but tolerance is not an open-ended value. Tolerance is an advance on respect. I will tolerate you until you start to respect me, and then we exchange respect. If you keep insisting I tolerate you without ever respecting me, I'm not going to tolerate you. And that's that's one of my rules. I think the uh, other point, again, for everybody, especially in a a generation whose uh, education has been as sabotaged as this one, is to relearn critical thinking, to read for yourself. It's one of the problems nowadays, especially with the Internet, is, I mean, we've had a society where you can get context so quickly, even from Wikipedia. I mean, never before has so much information been at people's fingertips so quickly and never before have they refused to think about how to actually use that information.
3: Well, that's, that's the challenge. Information can be confusing to people. <clears throat> you know, like when we talked about John McMurray, talking about too much information and facts can actually become um, a hindrance. It can become negative. It's, it's, not, it's not knowledge anymore because you can't integrate it. And it needs to be integrated. So you talk about critical thinking. I don't think you get that from facts. The only place to instill critical thinking is through some system of philosophy that, that teaches people that, there are, that there's an order to things, that reality is the arbiter, that reason is the way we, we arrive at what is real and what is not real, and yet huge swaths of the world
2: do not believe that. They operate on a completely different basis. But reason, even imperfect as it has been, has been actually one of the strengths of Western civilization. Absolutely. For the last it, it has
3: been the defining difference between Western civilization and all the others. I would say that's it right there.
2: And, and part of the last 40 years has been an assault on reason. That's why it's important on every one of us to become uh, a catalyst for the return of reason in our own lives and our own behavior and the, the way we, we teach others.
1: So to get back to the question I asked you originally was, what can you do constructively? You would suggest perhaps... Um, Use your mind. Start to think. Take your time. Don't be superficial about the events of the day and be so quick to take up arms against some paper tigers.
2: And when I say be thinking, it doesn't mean run off and embrace some cockamamie conspiracy theory. You keep open. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, the the point about uh, reason and faith, which have often been in harness, but faith has to be tested just like reason has to be tested all the time. You have to confront things that you disagree with and realize, how am I going to actually deal with them, cope with them, and absorb them? How can I take this attack on what I believe? And what can I accept out of it? What can I, again, the constant testing of what you believe. But ask that of other people. The the constant hard answers that are concrete and always, always true, they really don't
3: exist. Some people actually regard that as an attack on their person. When you when you suggest to them, mind you, it could be the way some people do it, like "oh, you're dumb," <laughs> you know, some 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 semblance of that. But when you when you're attacking other people's values in some way, they feel personally attacked. And and even if your attempt is just to make them think something a little different, look at look at it this way, look at it that way, and if they're entrenched in their point of view or they have something personal at stake, especially an interest. Um, And that's what happens in politics. You get all these entrenched interests that no longer are looking at the big picture. They're all lost in their own little pixels, as we were talking a a week ago there.
2: Again, another feature of the last 40 years. Uh, Also, people will embrace causes as part of their self-identity. We have derided Black Lives Matter, I think, with, with some reason. But there are people who've embraced that and that is part of their self-identity. and, sure. and when,
3: we, when we criticize that, they feel like they're being personally attacked. Yeah, um, well We're passing judgment, and I think that that's something that
1: society has <clears throat> been reluctant to do, the non-left part of society, because the left part is passing judgment all the time, and it's usually in a negative, incorrect way. We on the other side of the coin should start passing judgment and be prepared to be judged. You know, um, there's the old uh, Christian adage, you know, uh, judge not lest you be, uh, you know, lest you be judged. I, I don't like that. I'm saying judge all the time, judge and be prepared to condemn something that is incorrect, but also be prepared to be condemned yourself for your own actions.
2: Uh, yes, be prepared to do that, because, again, what we need is debate. And that is, again, one of the historic strengths of our civilization is that everything was always up for debate. No fact was ever hard and settled. We well, were always discussing and arguing. Well, we're entering an age of censorship where you cannot discuss,
1: for example, political Islam without being labeled incorrectly a right-wing or extreme right-wing person.
2: And I, I refuse to accept that. Yes, uh, and and so I know we. I know myself, i I'm not really that right wing. I mean, if I chart things through, I'm, I'm pretty left of center in some other ways as well. Um, but hey, if you're going to judge me, judge me for all of me. Um, and I'm going to not take your facts as a hard given. You don't take mine. But I'm prepared to defend what I believe. Are you prepared to defend what you believe? Or are you merely going to put down a wall and say, no, no, we're not going to talk about it. You're wrong. End of story. So consensus and debate is what we have to be about.
1: So we have to get over our fear of being offensive in the political sphere, I think.
2: And actually do so joyfully. Um, Mm, I I think (laughs) especially what they they call political correctness. You know, I I think we should actually get out there and treat it with all the derision it deserves on every possible occasion. Um, And have fun doing it. Oh, indeed, have fun doing it. I, I would love to sort of set up an annual or a daily award of the bladder on a stick. You know, other <laughs> opinion is sort of, okay, get out there and start joculating because you're an idiot. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I think that's a great way to end today's show, especially on a joyful note because that is pretty much what this show is about is critical thinking, the debate that's missing from so much of the media um, environment now. And we have a lot of fun doing this show. I hope you had a lot of fun joining us today, John. Thank you once again. And join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be
4: alright. Mr. Rickles, there's been an outbreak of uh, plane hijacking on planes headed for
3: Miami
2: winding up in Cuba. Do you think this is a a permanent situation we're going to have to live with? No, I think that'll stop as soon as Havana gets enough of their waiters back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on the island of Formosa, Chiang kai has uh, been there for several years now with 700,000 troops, and we've been supporting this uh, operation. Uh, what do you think of this situation on Formosa? I think it's great. After all, the restaurants would have a uh, definite supply of pork fried rice with him over there. <laughs> Yes. And uh there I think General Chiang Kai shek is a great asset. He just sits on the island all day long going,
4: they go, Yeah, dummy, we understand. And they give him a fortune cookie and he goes away. He's a real yo yo. Uh Mr. Rickles, one of the most controversial subjects right now are the
2: student protests. Would you give us your comment on that, please? I think uh what the kids are doing today is uh they have a right to demonstrate, and I believe in what they say. They have a right to their thinking. You
4: know, sometimes if they start burning the president of the school on a stick, there's no humor there. You know, Mr. Rickles, you being an authority on world affairs and since the Paris peace talks are still in progress. Do you have any solution for bringing them to a climax?
2: I think they should get a girl and have her stand on a table and do some tricks. <laughs>